You know, the vast majority of people in our country believe in the existence of God. We are, after all, a nation that is rich in Judeo-Christian heritage. Our coins are imprinted with the words, in God we trust. Our pledge of allegiance includes one nation under God. Songs such as God Bless America and America the Beautiful recognize that God has shed his grace on thee. And yet, despite all of this, we have become increasingly ignorant of this God we claim to believe. And if you doubt that, just ask this question the next time you have a conversation with somebody on the subject. Ask them the question, who is God to those who believe in his existence? For example, who is the God of the Jew? Who is the God of the Christian? Who is the God of the Muslim or the Buddhist? Who is the God of the Mormon or Jehovah Witness or the Christian scientist? Now, when you stop and think about it, there is uh, much, many opinions and many disagreements. You know, God means different things to different people. Who God is and what he can do, is he or she a concept, idea, or a personal God? Can God be known to man? You know, throughout human history, man has struggled with these questions. One of my favorite stories is told and also illustrates the confusion of such. It's told of two young boys who were forever getting into trouble, disrupting classes at school, teasing neighborhood children, uh, talking, uh, taking what didn't belong to them, talking when they weren't supposed to. And one day their mother asked the pastor to come over to their house to see if he could somehow talk some sense into them. So the the pastor took a rather different approach. Rather than threaten them or or reprimand them, uh, the pastor decided on a more subtle approach. He would try to help the boys see that God is everywhere, that God hears everything, that God sees everything. And so he began to ask them that question, trying to make them aware of everything that they do that would be displeasing and how they acted wrongly that God would see. So he said, young men, he said, "Uh, I have a question for you. He said, where is God? And the two boys looked at each other and they didn't say anything. And so the pastor thought maybe I'd say it a little louder. He said, "Uh, where is God? He goes, surely you know the answer to a simple question like that. Where is God? And the boys were frightened and they looked at each other and they didn't know what to say or what to do. And finally, a little bit more frustrated, the pastor looked at him and said, where is God? At that, the older boy grabbed his younger brother, whispered in his ear, hey, God's missing. Let's get out of here. They think we had something to do with it. (laughs) You know, just that confusion that all of us go through at times in our life. You know, for example, in ancient Rome and in Greece, they had many ideas about God or the gods. Their cultures believed in a multiplicity of gods, each capable of only performing certain actions. There was a God of love, there was a God for the sea, there was a God of space, there was a God of time. You know, polytheism, or the belief in many gods, was tolerated because no one could agree on who God is. Is there just one God or are there as many gods as as many belief systems that are out there? According to the Bible, Athens even had an altar dedicated to the unknown God. This apparently covered their bases in case they missed one. And uh, one of the early leaders of Christianity, a brilliant and well-educated man named Paul of Tarsus, referred to this altar in Athens and the God it represented when he spoke these words recorded in an historic record known as the Acts of the Apostles. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to look at this particular encounter that he had with the religious people of his day as he tried to help them understand and as he explained to them how they could get to know the unknown God. In Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16, we read these words. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him and some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, hey, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. 
And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul arrived in the great city of Athens at a low point in its illustrious history. Uh, Though still recognized as a center of culture and education, the glory of its politics and commerce long had since faded. In its heyday, several centuries before Jesus Christ, Socrates, his brilliant uh, student Plato and Plato's student Aristotle taught there. So did a man by the name of Epicurus, who was the founder of Epicureanism, and also Zeno, who was a founder of Stoism. And so when we look at this, we see these two represented in this particular passage, or at least their philosophies of living are, are represented. Now, by Paul's day, Corinth had replaced Athens you know, as the most prominent political and also um, most prominent commerce center in, the, in Greece, and yet Athens still maintained its cultural significance, and it was still the philosophical center of the world at that ta- time. It was also the home of one of the greatest universities that ever existed. So Athens was a religious center in many ways where almost every god in existence that was known to man was worshipped in this particular city. The pagan writer Petronius uh, quipped once that it was easier to find a god on the streets of Athens than it was to find a man. And the reason was simple. There were only 10,000 residents of the city of Athens at this time. And there were, by historical estimates, over 30,000 statutes of various deities that lined the streets that were there. Having been there several years ago, I could just imagine what it was like in this particular day because the remnants are still there. As you sit at the base or stand at the base of the Acropolis and the Agora or the Plaka, their city and marketplace area, you could look up at the Acropolis, which was the highest point in the city, and you could see the majesty of the Parthenon and all the temples that were built around it. And it doesn't take long to imagine what was going on at this particular time. And the exciting thing is you're bombarded with this dazzling display of all of these deities or all these so-called gods with statues all over over the place, is that Paul was in that city for such a time as that to turn his world right side up, for God's sake. It was an incredibly exciting time in Paul's life to know that it was for just such a time as that, that he was in the city to be able to proclaim to them that which they did not understand, nor did they know. In verse 16, you'll notice it says that now while Paul was waiting for them, who was them? It was Silas and Timothy. We know that from verse 15. It says now while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, it says his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. See, rather than see Athens from a tourist perspective, he saw it as a city full of lost men and women vainly attempting to worship a god or gods that they did not even know. And so he was provoked within him. He looked at men and women that were there as people who were lost and doomed to a Christless eternity. And as we'll learn from this passage, uh, we'll also realize that believing something or the sincerity of belief is not enough to introduce us to God. And as we look at this, the question that I had was, when was the last time that I saw people around me as lost? and doomed to a Christless eternity, who worship a God or gods in ignorance and do not know the true and one living God. His spirit was provoked within him. He saw people from God's perspective. And so often, as it's said, that you know we go to Europe or places like that and we look at the history and we go as tourists and we overlook millions and millions of people, not just there, but even in our home or as was mentioned, even our neighbors people that we've never had a conversation with, people that we walk by every day, people that we work with or go to school with or play athletic sports with. When was the last time that we saw them as Paul saw the city of Athens, as people that are lost and doomed to a Christless eternity? His spirit was stirred up or provoked within him. The word provoked is the same word, by the way, which we were already earlier introduced to when it says that Paul was, was provoked at Barnabas, at whether John Mark would go with them on their second missionary journey. The word paroxysm or being provoked means to to be angry or infuriated. He was so infuriated that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, who had bailed out on him. They had a big, you know, they had a confrontation over it. And if you remember, it was non-negotiable as far as Paul was concerned. The guy's not going with us. 
He bailed on us before. He'll bail on us again. Let's teach him a lesson. He's not coming with us. The same word is used here as he looked around the city. Instead of seeing the majesty and the glory of all these statues and all these the, the religious attempts that were there, his spirit was provoked or stirred up in him because he realized that, you know what, that sincerity or that attempt on their part would not bring him any closer to God. All that idol worship wasn't gaining him any points with any god or gods whatsoever. See, he became infuriated and he became provoked. And the reason was because he was provoked at sin. He was infuriated at sin. It was non-negotiable. And the reason that I know that is because you ask the question, well, what sin angered him? Hey, the sin of idolatry. He looked around the city and he saw people worshiping gods that they had created with their own hand at the expense of giving glory to the one true God. He was angered by that. He was provoked by that. When was the last time that you were genuinely angered or provoked by sin? We live in a culture that has become so absorbed by sin and it's so prevalent and prominent in our lives that many of us don't even recognize it for what it is any longer. Like the frog in the pot of water, we're slowly being boiled to death and surrounded by something. At first you go, oh, this feels good. But before you know it, it's overwhelmed our culture when was the last time that you were provoked by sin? And I don't mean to be provoked or angry at a person. I mean to be provoked and angry at sin and what it does to people. I told you last week of a friend of ours who decided he no longer wanted to be married any longer. That he was going to leave his marriage and his three children, two of them teenagers in high school, one in junior high school. And you know what? I can't, I can't begin to explain to you how angry and provoked I became. Not at him for the stupid thing he's choosing to do, as much as the choice that he's making and the sin that will destroy his life. The Bible says the sin that so easily entangles us and the ramifications and the repercussions of what will happen to not only him and his spiritual life, but also to his wife and to his children. It angered me. It provoked me. It stirred my soul. Because I know the road that he's going down. When was the last time that you were angry at sin and what it was doing to a friend of yours or a family member or the choices that they were making because you are discerning enough to see what's going to happen at the end of that road? Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What a man sows, he's going to reap payday one day for sin. And it'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It'll take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you're willing to pay. It always is the way it is. See, Paul was stirred up, man. He was excited about what he saw around him. But you know what was interesting about it is notice what he did. He was so provoked, it says in verse 17, so he did something about it. He did something about it. Notice what he did. It says it indicates he did something. He didn't just sit back. He didn't complain about all the idols, the nonsense of the philosophers. He took some very positive action. He hated the sin, but he loved the sinner and demonstrated his love for people and that he took action. He reasoned with them. He told them the truth of God's word. He confronted them about what they were doing and he gave them the truth of God that the truth of God sets people free from the bondage of sin. I was so provoked from, about what my friend had chosen to do, I couldn't help but call him. I was so provoked by what he had chosen to do that even after our conversation, I couldn't help but to email him. I haven't heard back from him, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep on emailing him and dropping him lines as if, you know, I was like, hey, by the way, message from God today. Just want to let you know. And I'm going to start signing it, you know, you know, you know signed God. It's okay, because as long as it's scripture, it's signed God. You know, don't be deceived, you know, don't, don't, don't be deceived. You know, God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going uh, to reap. Signed, God. Shall love your wife as Christ loved the church. Signed, God. And continue to do it, and hopefully God will penetrate this guy's hard heart at this point. I've been thinking about this for a long time, he said. This is the same guy who said, by the way, you know what, when other people were going through it, I'd never do that. See, the epitome of pride is, I'll never do that. I'll never turn and walk from my God, people say. Really. Some of the wisest men, the godliest men in the world, walk the face of the earth. I was reading a passage in 2 Kings about King Solomon. It says he was wholly devoted to God, and God warned him if he followed after women whose hearts were bent toward other gods, 
that they would lead his heart far from God. And, and you know what the Bible says? And Solomon's heart was not wholly devoted to God any longer. But I'm sure that Solomon sometime in his life said, you know what, that'll never happen to me. I'm one bad dude. It'll never happen to me. Oh, I think Peter said something like that too, didn't he? Hey, they'll all desert you. They'll all run from you. But not me. I am a spiritual giant. I don't even know the man. It's like, what happened to that? He was reasoning with them. Here's the application. Stop complaining about our upside-down world and do something positive. Share God's truth with others. That's what Paul did. He had to moan and groan and whine and complain about all these gods and all these false statues and all this stuff that's there. He said, you know what? The only way I'm going to reason with these people, I'm going to tell them the truth. His audience fell into three groups, by the way. There were the pious, the religious people. There were the pagans in the workplace. And there were the philosophers, the uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, as we've just mentioned. Each of them had a very unique worldview, and yet Paul's approach was the same. He would share God's truth in a manner that started from their frame of reference and would lead them to the God they did not know. Notice Paul's commitment to reach folks. First, he went into the synagogue as he normally did. What we talk about, he knew the drill. I'm going into town, this is where I'm going to go. Some people are going to receive the message with gladness. Other people are going to reject it. I'm going to be persecuted. I already know what to expect. There are going to be people who are going to be glad to hear what the message is. And there are going to be people who hate every, every, every word from God. And you know what? And frankly, we shouldn't really care one way or the other. Should I be worried about what my friend thinks as he's walking down a path of destruction? Or should I just be committed to telling the truth? You think he likes hearing from me? Not right now. But that's okay. You know, because all of us have gotten so timid and so cowardly when it comes to warning of the disaster and the consequences of sin, we'd rather sit back and not say anything because it's uncomfortable to be confronted with God's truth when we've chosen a path that is in rebellion against Him. But we must speak the truth and speak it in love and understand that, you know what, no matter how loving that we speak, oftentimes it will not be heard in that, in that tone. But we must be committed to truth. And that's what Paul was. He went into the synagogue and in the marketplace. With whomever happened to be there, he began to reason with them about God's truth. As I read through that, I thought, you know what? Some of us have never shared God's truth in the marketplace. It's almost as if it's like, I go here to work, and you know what? In my faith, and in my work environment, the two shall never mix. It's kind of, I just go to this, I, I just go and I just play baseball. I just go and I just play football. I just go and I just, uh, you know, I'm in the construction industry and I just do that. Or I just go and I'm in retail sales and I just do that. But never will the two ever mix because, you know what, after all, that's what we're there to do. Hey, you know what, Paul was a leather worker, a tent maker. And he went into the marketplace and he worked with his hands. And you know what it says that as he was mending tents or, or, or repairing leather products... As people came into the Plaka or the Agora or the marketplace, whoever God would bring into his path that would look at his goods, he'd just look at him and ask him the question, hey, do you know God? And he would begin to reason with them. And he did it so often and he stirred up such an interest that these people went back to him and they said, hey, we've got to hear more about what you're saying in a bigger format, in a bigger setting. But he was faithful to do it. Some of us go, well, you know what, I'm just a secretary. I don't want to tell anybody about Jesus. Let me just tell you from personal experience, it was just a secretary that told my wife, Linda, and shared with her the gospel for the first time. But I'm just in the construction industry. It was a contractor who cared enough about me to confront me with the gospel for the first time. But I'm just a shoe salesman. Oh, it was a shoe salesman, by the way, who confronted a man by the name of D.L. Moody when he was sizing him for a pair of shoes and said, do you know God? Have you ever come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And it was D.L. Moody who, by the way, that left there, having come to faith in Christ, and he told millions of people about Jesus. See, it was just a shoe salesman. It was just a contractor. It was just a secretary. I don't know what you do, but you know what? Don't ever think you're just this, that, or the other thing. You are in a strategic place for such a time as this, to turn your world right side up for God's sake. And Paul knew that, and he took advantage of that. 
In Acts 17, verses 18 through 21, we see the results of these conversations, this reasoning. It says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, dialogue, conversing, talking back and forth about what it was that they believed, what it was that he believed, why he believed what he believed, always ready to give an answer, a defense for the hope that's within us. He was prepared. And they would share back and forth, and some said, yeah, what would this babbler wish to say? What they were saying was it, was, it was very derogatory. They were saying that, you know, Paul basically was a man who traveled all over the place, and he just took bits and pieces of philosophies that he ran across as if a bird was picking seed. And then he would take it, and he would come into a new town, and then share it as if it was some great truth that he had come up with on his own. So it was very derogatory in what they were saying. This idle babbler, what has he got to say? Others are saying he's proclaiming some strange deities to us because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they didn't, they didn't consider the resurrection of Jesus one and the same. They thought they were, he was preaching about Jesus and then somebody by the name of Anastasia or the resurrection. It was some different. It was like, oh, there's two new gods that he's introducing to us. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. Isn't that a beautiful question? Hey, can you tell us more? How many of you saw the interview that took place this past week of the two gals who were being held captive by the Taliban in Afghanistan? They were reporters from all over the world. This is beautiful. And, and they're asking questions about, hey, well, what is it that you told them that got you in so much trouble? Really? Man, this is great. When was the last time anybody from CNN would ask that question? Can you tell us, how, what do you mean your faith sustains you? Can you talk to us more about that? Isn't that great? But you notice what price had to be paid before they had the privilege of sharing. See, Paul always got beat up. It was like after he got beat up, people were going, man, you know, you should be really angry and bitter and vindictive and you're beat up and you're praising God and singing hymns of praises and you're shouting hallelujah and you're holding hands singing kumbaya. And what in the world? <laughs> You know, what's going on here? What's happening? It's like, you know, it was only after that that they go, okay, now we're interested. See, isn't that great? And every one of us want to avoid, you know, trials and tribulations. And, and, and sometimes we think that, oh, trials and tribulations. Hey, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you become complete, perfect, mature, lacking in nothing. You know, but all of us, man, we go through trials and tribulations and we go, where, 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 why me? And it's like, you know what? Hey, it's because God's going to use that, maybe, maybe, to be able to reach others. Well, man, how can you have such peace in your life? How can you have such joy in your life? How do you have such contentment in your life in the midst of such terrible circumstances? And Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content. I learned to be content when I was fed and well taken care of by God. I learned to be content when I was going through trials and adversity. I've learned the secret of being in times of prosperity and times of need. And you know what the secret was? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was the secret. So as we're going through this, we come to this beautiful presentation now that we have of the truth about God. Notice what he says. He leads it up and he takes him to the point of saying, I observe that you are religious in all respects and you've got an inscription on one of your altars to an unknown God. And I want to show you the outline that, he's going to, that we're going to follow. Four truths about God. That God is great. And he's going to use creation to demonstrate it. That God is good. He's a provider of all things. That God is the governor of everything. That he's absolute ruler of all the universe. And that also that God is a God of grace. And he will introduce them to their savior whom they've never met. And so we'll go through it one at a time. First one is this. The greatness of God has to do with the fact that God is a creator. Notice in verse 24, this is exactly where he starts. The God, notice what he says. The God who made the world and all things in it. Paul began his address by conceding to them that they're very religious. I notice, oh, you're so religious. Yeah, you're religious people. And, and using their belief in a supernatural being or beings to declare God's truth. You're very religious people. Think about people that we know. Hey, you're religious people. You go to church. We notice that you go to church. You're religious people. We know that, you know, you're having your child baptized. Or we know that you're doing this, you know, confirmed. Or we know that you're doing this, that, or the other thing. We notice you're very religious people. And that's a wonderful thing. Because that's the first step in getting to know God. Believing, the Bible says. Believing that He exists. First, we must recognize and believe that God exists. He who comes to God must believe that he exists. Hebrews eleven six. No one will search for a path to a destination they believe does not exist. And they must have believed that there was a God among all their gods whom they did not know because they've acknowledged that. 
Now, what's interesting to me as I went through it is, and it's a very important for all of us to recognize, despite their great intellect, their human wisdom, they admitted they were ignorant of God. They were brilliant people. They were rocket scientists, so to speak. And you know what? They didn't know God. Don't ever be intimidated by the most brilliant people from a human perspective that you meet, because many brilliant people do not know God. The second thing is, despite being extremely religious, they did not know God. We grew up in a background where we were extremely, what I thought was extremely religious. I mean, I was an altar boy that got up at 5.30 in the morning in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the wintertime and walked to go to church in the snow so that I could serve God in that capacity. I had different statues for different causes. I had one on the car that was for traveling. I had one for playing sports. I had another thing for this, that, and the other thing. Man, you know what? As far as I was concerned, I was a very religious person. But I didn't know God. I knew religion, but I didn't know God. They didn't either. And in fact, their religious superstitions were keeping them from knowing God. That was holding them back. And many today are in that same dilemma. The Bible doesn't even offer or try to offer formal arguments for God's existence. His existence is ultimately a matter of revelation and a matter of faith. But it's not a blind faith. God's existence, we can look at very clearly because the Bible reveals powerful and convincing uh, evidence for God's existence. External evidence. The Bible says the heavens are declaring the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Psalm 19.1. Internally, that which is known about God is evident within people for God made it evident to them. Romans 1.19. How do you know something's wrong? How do you know something's right? How are you troubled by certain things? Even those who don't know God, there's a sense of justice in all of our hearts. If we walked down the street and we saw a man beating a woman or we saw an adult beating a child, there would be something inside of us that would incense us to rage and saying, that's not right. Even a person that doesn't know God has a sense of justice. Why? Because we are created in his image and in his likeness. Our capacity to know justice, our capacity to know purity, things that are right, things that are wrong, our capacity to love one another, even as frailly as it is sometimes, all comes because we're created by God. The law of cause and effect argues for God's existence. Common sense tells us that every effect must have a cause, yet there cannot be an endless chain of such causes. The cosmological argument theology is that God is the great cause, and the effect is what we see around us. And in fact, the Bible acknowledges a principle of cause and effect. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, it says this. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Think about it. You have never and I have never seen a house just miraculously come into being. You can't set the material on a job site and hope the wind blows along and then puts up a building. They understood there was a great cause. They just didn't know who he was. And into all this confusion, with all these conflicting philosophies and idolatry, Paul spoke forcefully the truth that the one true God not only exists, but can also be known. Notice, what you therefore worship in ignorance, I have come to proclaim to you. The teaching of the Bible is very simple. That God is a personal God who can be known by man. My Lord and my God. My shepherd, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. A personal God that man can know. God wants us to know him. Paul's bold assertion that God made the world and all things in it just shook these people up, but he didn't compromise the truth. Hey, the God who made the world and all things in it. Notice that. They did not like someone telling them that there is a God who created the universe. Well, what do you know has much changed in the last 2,000 years? We live in a culture that doesn't like to know there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. And you know why we know that we, don't, we, got, a, we got a culture that doesn't like it? Because we promote evolution as if it's some type of scientific theory or fact, and it's neither. It's neither. People say, well, I teach it as a theory. Well, the problem is it's not a theory since it's not observable, repeatable, or testable, let alone an established fact. It's not even a theory. 
And the impressive scientific evidence against evolution can be briefly summarized as this. If you're ever talking to somebody about evolution, it should provoke your soul within you and your spirit within you to confront them with the truth. Well, things just evolved. Well, wait a minute. Then explain to me the second law of thermodynamics. This will be a good one, man. You're going to come off looking brilliant. You'd be like, well, I just got a question for you, and it involves the second law of thermodynamics. And when they go like this, they go, well, you know that law, don't you? Oh, wait a minute. What's one of the most respected scientific laws accepted by all in the scientific community? And that is this, that basically everything is winding down. Everything's winding down. It says if there is a clock that was set in place and it's ticking backwards. Our son and his fiance got one of those cute little clocks that count down how many days you have left of freedom. And, uh, and, and it's as if it's counting down to some great cataclysmic event. And it is. <laughs> but it's winding down. See, in the, in the, law of, uh, the second law of thermodynamics is very simple. As far as we know, all changes in the direction of increasing entropy or of increasing, or of increasing disorder, of increasing randomness, of running down. Everything is running down, not forward. Well, if everything is running down and not forward, how do you explain evolution? If anything, that argument in of itself just throws that whole nonsense out the window. And yet there's still people who hold on to it as if somehow or another they got this handle on this great truth and they're foolish in the sight of God. Everything is running down to a great cataclysmic event. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and establish his kingdom here on this earth. And at the end of that period of time that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. This earth and everything in it and the universe is passing away. It's winding down. It is not evolving into something greater. The second thing is paleontology. Very simple. All that means is the fossil record. If you know their evolution is true, there should be millions and millions of transitory uh, fossil records showing how one species end up evolving into a higher species. And you know what? Even, even those who hold out to evolution say, we got a problem in this area. Really? You're kidding me. David Kitts of the University of Oklahoma admits, despite the bright promise that paleontology provides a means of seeing evolution, it has presented some very nasty difficulties for evolutionists, the most notorious of which is the presence of gaps in the fossil record. Evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide them. We have no evidence for this nonsense that is being perpetuated upon our culture. The other reason I don't believe in evolution is because the scriptures very clearly teach the opposite. And I believe in the authority, the authenticity, and the reliability of scripture, which is a whole other study. And we did a study on it, on knowing God, and we went into the reliability and the authority of scripture. Why should I believe the Bible rather than these great, these wise scientists who come out and promote evolution? Well, I don't believe the scientists for two reasons. One is the law of thermodynamics throws out everything they say they believe. And the second is fossil record doesn't give them any evidence either. So both of those are enough to just throw that out the window. And then scripture, if you can deny the authenticity, reliability, or trustworthiness of scripture, then you've got an argument against what I'm about to say, but if you can't, then listen very carefully, because it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's just one. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the, law, in the Lord and his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Isaiah, do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Isaiah, the God who formed the heaven and earth, made it. Jeremiah, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. And if that's not enough, Ephesians 3.9 declares that God created all things. Colossians 1.16, a very powerful statement as it will relate to what we're about to share, says this of Jesus. Jesus Christ. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and in the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. There's only one God, and God is the creator of the universe and all things. And the Bible identifies Jesus Christ as the creator of the universe and all things. Then it stands to reason that Jesus Christ is the one true living God. That was the message that he was going to confront them with. He was going to shake up their world. And he walked in there and he was saying, hey, listen, a plan requires a planner. A program requires a programmer. A design requires a designer. 
And that's the simplicity of the fact that in God's greatness, He is the creator of the universe. He walked in and said, hey, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in a temple made with hands. And he goes on to say, neither is he served, which he now introduces the idea that God is a God of goodness and that he is the provider of all things. Notice what his argument is very simple. He goes out and points very clearly the absurdity of imagining that God, the creator and the ruler of the universe, should need to be served by human hands as though he needed anything. Think about it. You people are out there trying to serve gods or manufacture these gods or make gods, and we got a God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, including you. How absurd it is that you think that God needs you for anything. It's the height of arrogance. The epitome of pride. God does not need us, but we are wholly dependent upon Him. He is a gracious God. He gives. He is the provider. He gives. We were talking to friends last night who were in San Francisco last week, and they were at Pier 39. Anybody's ever visited there, you know. It's an amazing place of hustle, bustle, things going on, restaurants, you know, and the docks are there, and the food's coming in, you know, all of the seafood that's there, it's just lined up. And, we, and now we were talking about how, how incredibly gracious and amazing is God as our provider. And that in that just one location, you see food that's just there to be able to provide for for. for Many, many people going to Costco, going to a restaurant, going to a grocery store and stop and think for a moment that this is just one isolated place of the thousands and tens of thousands of places that exist that are filled with food that are given to us by our provider. Yes, man works to cultivate and harvest and do what we're supposed to do. But the reality of all of it is that, you know what? God could withhold rain. God gives us sunshine. God is the giver of every good thing, including the very life that we have. You got up this morning because God gave you your life. He gave you another day. You were able to come here because you've given you the ability to be able to be mobile in some shape, manner, or form. Some are less mobile than others. And we ask that you come earlier so people don't trip over you. But, but the reality of it is, is that God is the giver of all things. He's the giver of life. And the Bible tells us He's the giver of every good thing. And let me tell you something. He also gives to those who don't recognize His existence. I told you before, the sun shines on my neighbor's house who claims to not believe in the existence of God. And yet he enjoys all the blessings of God every day. He likes to camp. He likes to go out in the, in the great outdoors. And he likes to enjoy the creation that he believes somehow just evolved. And yet there's no evidence whatsoever for that. But rather than thank God as creator, we would rather not have to deal with him at all. It's the great sin in the heart of man that somehow we don't need God and that God needs us. Are you kidding me? What are we thinking? How foolish is that thought? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Romans eleven thirty six. Paul commanded Timothy to instruct those who were rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, tells, tells us uh, from the book of James, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation. Or shifting shadow. Every good thing comes from God. He goes on as if that wasn't enough. And the arguments are there. He goes on to say that oh by the way. We also want to discuss his government. His government. From the standpoint that God is the ruler of all things. Notice in verses 26 through 29. It says and he made from one. Every nation of mankind. To live on all the face of the earth. And having determined their appointed times. And boundaries of their habitation. That they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him. And find him. Though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are all his offspring. Being then the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and thought of man. That God is the ruler of all things. He is the Lord. Notice he says, the Lord of heaven and earth. We sing choruses. The Lord of heaven and earth. He's the ruler of all things. Psalm 24, David says, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Humbled by God's, if you remember our study in the book of Daniel, Daniel humbled by God's devastating judgment on him. 
the, at this point in his life, the unbelieving pagan king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was forced to admit this. He says, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? No one can question the sovereign role of God. You know, as I was thinking about this where it says that he's determined their appointed times. The first thing that came to my mind was that it's appointed for man to die once. And then comes judgment. Even before you and I came into this world, the Bible says that God knew us and knew of our existence before yet we were given one day. He goes on to say that it's appointed for each of us to die once and then to come judgment. That God knows the appointed time and the means by which we will leave this life and enter into the next. And then comes judgment. It is appointed by God. God is in absolute control over everything. He is a sovereign ruler, His government. And as I was reading through this and and thinking about this, the passage that I couldn't help but be reminded of as it relates to our whole subject as we put all this together is found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Listen very carefully. It's a verse that we hear oftentimes at Christmas, but it applies all the time. For a child will be born unto us, and a son will be given. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no increase, no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And there shall be no end to the increase of his government or his rule. Do you realize what a powerful statement that is? That if there is only one God and He's the creator of the universe and the Bible identifies that God as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, it's a powerful statement that Jesus is the God of the universe. If the God of the universe is in control of all things and He appoints and determines boundaries and He lifts up one and takes down another and He sets into motion all the governments of the world and the Bible says, and the government shall be upon His shoulder... And there will be no end to the increase of his government. Another powerful statement that Jesus Christ is not only the creator of the universe, but he's also the ruler and sovereign of it all as well. As we go through and look at this, we come to one final point that he makes, and we'll close on this, and that is that he also identifies for them the grace of God and that God is our Savior. And this is the culmination of his argument. Can you see how he's worked this very clearly and very concisely? He says, look, I know that you're religious people. You believe in God. And he who, belie- he who believes in God, must be- comes to God, must believe that he exists. So the fact you are religious means that you have a hunger or a thirst to believe in God, to know him on a personal level. Well, let me tell you something. He's the creator of everything. He's not only the creator of everything, he's the provider of everything. He gives you your very life and everything that you have to sustain you. He's also the, the, the government is upon his shoulder. He's the ruler of all. And they should know because Greece was a great empire. And as all they had to do was look around the city of Athens and realize, you know what? We have faded into eternity past. We're no longer the great empire that we were 400 years before Christ. We're just, we're just a figment of our own previous imagination. There's 10,000 of us in this city now. There was more than 10 times that in Philippi, and there was 200,000 people in Thessalonica. It was a dead and dying city. Its splendor was wearing off. And they realized that, you know what, just as one comes and goes, another takes its place. But God is in control of all things. And so if we go back to Acts 17, notice his, his conclusion of his message to these people who did not know God. He's saying in verse 30, therefore, it's a summation of everything he said. Hey, therefore, where where are we going with all this? Here's where we're going. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Notice what he said. There was a time when God cut people a break because the specific revelation of God's plan wasn't known to them. He could have stepped in at any time and judged them for sin. There's consequence for sin. He could do the same in our life as he could have there. But you know what he said? That God in his gracious, loving mercy cut humanity a break and that while there was a time of ignorance of God and who he was, he basically declared a time of mercy on them. Not that they were to be saved in any other way, but he was merciful in how he dealt with people. But notice what he says. But now that that time of ignorance is over, 
there is no more excuse. Because God has specifically revealed to us, humanity, what we need to do to come into a relationship with the one true living God. There's no more ignorance. What I used to do in ignorance and how I used to be religious, God said, hey, there's no more excuse for you because you've been confronted with the only way that you will be made right with God, the only path that leads to an eternity in the presence of God. You have now been exposed to the truth and you are held accountable for that. The times of ignorance are over. And God's message to the world is very simple. Repent. You know what that means? Turn from sin and turn to God and throw yourself upon his mercy. I notice that you're religious in all things, but you know what? God's message isn't to be religious. It's to repent. It's to turn from your religion and sin and turn to God. To recognize what God is asking us to do, to recognize that we are, as the Bible says, we're sinners and fall short of the glory of God. To repent from that sin. To repent and to respond with faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross for our sins. That he rose again three days later. And the essence of his message, the culmination of everything is very simple and that's this. He says that God's desire is declaring, it's a command, that all should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You know, the Bible tells us that all judgment has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, it says, all judgment has been given to me. It says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he who has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Remember, Jesus said, if, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. In Philippians 2, we're told that Jesus, who humbled himself and took on the form of a bondservant and took on the form, even the appearance of man, that he would die upon the cross, that God highly exalted him because of his obedience and his death on the cross. He's been elevated and given a name above every other name, that at the name of the Jesus, that every knee would bow and every, every tongue would confess he's Lord to the glory of God. The name of Jesus, there's no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved but that of Jesus Christ. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The confusion of the world that we live in with all the gods that we claim to be praying to. The Bible, God says very clearly, that time of ignorance is over. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through Him. You are to repent. We are to respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, knowing that He did it on the cross. On our behalf, it is finished. God also says that He affirms His message by raising Him from the dead. He says that he has raised him from the dead, giving proof to all men, raising him from the dead. And that the last thing that we are to do is to receive him as our Lord and as our Savior. You notice the response is the response is the same anytime the message is proclaimed. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, eh, we'll listen to you again some other time. All they cared about was talking about stuff, never come to any conclusion and never acting upon it. See, they didn't have TVs then. They got together just to talk. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Oh, that's another interesting thought. Oh, what do you have to say? Oh, good. Somebody new from out of town. We can hear something different because I'm getting a little tired of your stories. It's like, oh, great. So some sneered. Some said, hey, that was interesting. Thanks for sharing it with us. But you know what? But some men joined and believed. Among them also was Dionysius, the Arepagite, and a woman by the name of Demarius and others with them. You notice that? God's message always calls people to a decision. Are there many gods? Did the world just evolve? Or is there only one God who's identified himself very clearly as the creator of heaven and earth, as the provider of all things, as the, as the one who rules and appoints boundaries and determines limitations and even gives us our very breath every day and appointed the day that we will die? As we go on, we also realize that God's grace is introducing to the world the only Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? The Bible says that you shall believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. See, if you want to have a relationship, personal relationship with the God who created you, the Bible says, for as many as received Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to them He has given the privilege to be called the child or the children of God to those who believe in His name. Have you believed in His name? 
Have you believed in his name? Have you repented of your sin? Have you recognized your need for forgiveness? Have you responded with faith to the finished work of Christ? If you have, when? Because you can't come into a relationship with the God of the universe and not know when. And the last thing is if you receive Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. Jesus said it best, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come unto the Father but through me. For such a time as this, God has given us this message that we can declare to an ignorant world that you can know God and know him personally through a personal relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we become as bold as Paul and share that message with all God will bring into our path. Father, thank you for this very clear understanding of who God is. There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, and know the Lord your God is one. And we shall have no other gods before you. You clearly identify yourself as the creator of the universe. May our soul and spirit be provoked within us when we hear the nonsense that's perpetrated upon our community about evolution and the, the, the nonsense in which it, it entails. God, help us to become bold in our, in our testimony as we share with others just the truth of science. Thermodynamics rules it out. Paleontology or fossil record rules it out. And the scripture so very clearly teaches that God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You tell us that every design needs a designer, every program a programmer. God, we know that you are the great cause of everything that we see. May we honor you as such. God, may we be sensitive to those who are religious in various ways, thinking that their religion is what makes them right before you. And be able to explain and reason with them that it's not religion, but a relationship with the living God that God requires of all men. And it only happens through, by responding in faith to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. God, help us to be clear in our understanding as we communicate that with others. That it's only through faith in Christ alone. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, as we look forward to this Thanksgiving week, maybe a week that we are very thankful for the very salvation that we have through faith in Christ and the provisions that you give us on a regular basis. And may we praise you and give you glory and be a light in darkness so that others who are living in ignorance as these folks were would come to understand the one true living God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.